Lynch. I'm Leonard Lopate. Michael Patrick McDonald is an American activist who lives part of the year in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. He's the author of a number of books, including the American Book Award-winning best-selling memoir, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie, and also Easter Rising, A Memoir of Roots and Rebellion. And he's been serving as a special correspondent on this show, covering events in Ireland. He joins us now to talk about, among other things, the responses to the death of Queen Elizabeth throughout that very complicated island. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show now. Hi, Michael. Hey, good to hear you, Leonard. Ireland was the first British colony and the most imp- and the first imperial project. How long has it been? <clears throat> well, um, you could say 800 years, but in terms of modern British imperialism, um, since the uh, Tudors, uh, so the 16th century, hmm. um, Charles claimed it as the Kingdom of Ireland, part of uh, Britain, but it really hastens uh, around Elizabeth I and afterwards throughout the 1600s when the plantations start to happen. So Ireland's the first colony, the first British colony. It, it, it's often seen as the laboratory for British colonization of the rest of the world. It was kind of a testing ground. It's where some of the worst um, torture and theft were kind of rehearsed before Britain uh, took to the seven seas and and uh, claimed a third of the globe. The, the period of plantation, uh, it's also the first plantations. It's the, the, per- the plantation period in the 1600s is a period of confiscation of land from the natives, from the indigenous people there, um, and the granting of that land to either English lords, uh, you know, maybe like the the second son in the family who they wanted to give something to, um, or else to um, Scottish planters, Scottish people who would be loyal to the crown, who would be what would be an important thing, part of one's identity, if you're British and loyal to the crown at this period in history, would be that you're Protestant also. Um, And so uh, Scottish people who were Protestant and loyal to the crown were also given land that was confiscated from the Gale, from the native. So that begins in the 1600s. and, you know, all the other kinds of invasions and conquests that might have happened on this island in the western fringes of Europe, all the other invasions, conquests, uh, arrivals even, are ones that saw assimilation into a kind of Gaelic Irishness. That goes for Christianity when it arrived with Patrick. That goes for the Vikings who raped, pillaged, and plundered, but of course ended up settling down and absorbing and uh, into the culture. That goes for the Anglo-Normans, the predecessors to British imperial colonialism, who in 1169 arrived, attempted a kind of you know cultural apartheid, really failed, and absorbed themselves and absorbed into the the culture. It's with with Elizabeth that you the first that you see uh, this intentional targeting of the culture for uh, destruction, a targeting of the language uh, and the storytellers and everything that was strange to the British uh, when they arrived uh, for destruction. The targeting of those things. So. Uh, It's a very different, it's the beginning of a real shift. Uh, All previous invasions just became Irish people, uh, however brutal they may have been. And, and it's with Elizabeth I, with this, the beginning of what we know as, you know, modern British colonialism, um, that you see this intentional targeting of the culture. Of course, the reason Irish people today, for the most part, speak English, it Mm -hmm. begins in this period. But Uh, it's also because... Uh, geographical proximity has created yeah. intimate but not necessarily friendly ties, both economically and culturally. Yeah, and I think some of the the, the reason for some of the worst brutality there, I mean, you know, how do you, you can't compare uh, British brutality in different places, like it's not a contest, but um, some <laughs> of the, <laughs> some of the, you know, some of it, I think, can be explained with by the proximity, I mean it's right next door. It's in the way of the uh, of the of the seas, which mm-hmm. Britain uh, you know used to dominate the world with the British um, fleets. 
And so part of it is that is that proximity. And sometimes they would use that as an excuse as uh, that that there that Ireland is kind of an, 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 a backdoor to um, for invasion. Uh, and that that begins in the period of, you know, contest between among uh, imperial powers throughout Europe. Uh, Catholic imperial powers, of course. So the native people, the the Gales, by by this point, by the time uh, of British colonization, Britain has become Protestant. The Reformation has happened, so the Protestant and Catholic thing is really important in this period uh, to the imperial powers. Ireland, uh, England's a, uh, a you know Britain becomes a Protestant imperial power, and of course their enemies are the Catholic ones of Spain and France. So that would be Ireland would be used as kind of an excuse. We really have to control Ireland, control these natives, these savages who speak funny, who behave uh, oddly to us, who don't have a propensity for feudalistic hierarchical organization. We need to subjugate these people so that they don't make friends with our Catholic enemies since they too are Catholic. Uh, so the backdoor thing was an excuse and it was used all the way into the Cold War, really, yeah, well, as a reason to maintain control of, of Ireland, that Ireland would be a backdoor for communism as well. Of course, a lot of the resistance to imperialism um, fomented a lot of socialist uh, movement building in Ireland. So um, so they just use that as kind of an excuse. Of course, at the end of the day, what it served as was uh, um, a, a great you know, source of raw materials for shipbuilding, um, foodstuffs to be shipped throughout the colonial British colonized world, um, which included, of course, the the British enslavement of people and so forth. And and tensions lasted all the way into the end of the, the 20th century. Ireland gained its independence from Britain in 1922, the, the Republic of Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, the, the, although no, when Northern Ireland remained part of uh, the United Kingdom, there were unresolved tensions between nationalists who wanted to be part of the Republic and unionists loyal to the crown, and that led to decades of violence known as the Troubles mm -hmm. between the late and 1960s and the, and the late 1990s. There were mm -hmm. massacres and um, there were fights between uh, the Brits and, uh, uh, well, the Brits with their loyalist paramilitaries, etc. So mm -hmm. uh, 3,600 people were killed and more than 30,000 wounded from 1969 until the uh, agreement called the Good Friday Agreement was finally signed in 1998. Mm -hmm. And, a lot, you know, so that whole period is rooted in this plantation period I refer to because mm -hmm. that the plantation period is the period where um, so so Britain, a Protestant power, shows up in Ireland. Uh, you know, I, I feel like the troubles throughout the late 20th century, a lot of us got news that that was a battle between Catholics and Protestants as if they were fighting over religion, of course. Um, and that was a detraction. Uh, that narrative was a detraction. That was a kind of master narrative that Britain liked to put out there that detracted from the history of colonialism. And, and the history of colonialism saw the creation and false divisions between uh, these two communities that would extend for centuries. So by uh, coming to Ireland and establishing um, an ascendancy, uh, an ascendancy of people. So establishing with, with the natives, with the Gales, with the Irish, who happened to be Catholic, um, impoverishing that population, uprooting them from their land and handing that land to um, Anglo lords and Scottish settlers, Scottish Protestant loyal to the crown settlers, they created the, the, a, a kind of caste system that lasted um, into the current moment, actually, throughout the late 20th century, certainly, but also into the current moment, I would say. And that was rooted in that period of, of land grab. And so by the late 20th century, you have two populations, uh, you know, you have many populations, but uh, mainly two, uh, that are at war with each other. They're often referred to as the Catholics and the Protestants, but the Catholics are the descendants of, or uh, they identify as the descendants of the native colonized people. And the people who are referred to as the Protestants are the people who were given this notion 
of ascendancy status, and they're often referred to as the Protestant ascendancy. And it was were very, they were they shipped in in many cases? Um, yeah. So, uh, well, they would they would be offered land, so they weren't forced or anything, but they would be offered land in the the place that was created called Northern Ireland. Um, so you referred to the in the early 20th century. It's important to get to that in the early 20th century, after centuries of colonization and land grab and um, and second class citizenship for the natives in their own land. Uh, the Irish rose up in 1916. That Easter Rising was um, was was squashed, and the leaders of the uprising were executed. And they were executed by the crown in such a brutal way that that made the Irish people rise up in a much bigger way. So the war for independence uh, followed the Easter Rising. That was made, that was the Irish people rising up against British imperialism. It leads to the partial. Uh, independence of the island. 26 counties out of 32 uh, counties uh, got got independence, created the Irish Free State, which would eventually become the Irish Republic. But six counties were carved out in a very gerrymandered way um, at that time when the island was partitioned by the Brits. Uh, six counties were retained by the United Kingdom, and they carved out those six counties and created a place called Northern Ireland. Called that, even though it's not the most northern part of Ireland, like the most <laughs> northern county in Ireland is Donegal. And Donegal, because it had a large Catholic, i.e. native population, was left out of that construction called Northern Ireland because if they had included it, it would have created an, uh, a majority, a Catholic, Irish-identified majority that is not loyal to the crown. So they carved out um, Northern Ireland of the six counties and uh, did it in such a way that there would be a Protestant, Unionist, loyal to the crown, British-identified majority. Um, and that led to the troubles of late 20th century and the the bloodshed, the, the, the tragic divisions that were caused by all this colonial manipulation for centuries and colonial manipulation that has extended into the current moment. Ireland's the first colony, but it's also one that remains the northern part anyway, the northern six counties. But it's getting becoming a little more complicated because there are a fair number of Catholics in Northern Ireland now yeah. as well. Um, <laughs> they, 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 and the, they po and the whole political more. difference has become a little blurred over the years. What has? Say that again. I'm sorry. I was saying, and political differences have become a, a bit blurred in recent yeah, years. Yeah, and identifications, identities and identifications are blurred, especially with younger people and, you know, just the world in general, how it's changing. So, um, you know, I think there's always been this false identification of the Catholics and the Protestants, um, as if people are um, basing their enmity or their struggle on uh, religion. Uh, but uh, whatever of that existed, of course, with younger people, there's not a whole lot of identification as a particular religion. The Protestant, the, the type of Protestantism, the, the, the uh, kind of, especially the the Scots Presbyterian version, would be very evangelical, very conservative. You might call it right wing. Very definitely anti um, rights, LGBT rights, women's rights, and so forth. And in, in, a, in a much more extreme way than anybody who would call themselves Catholics would be. So it would be a very evangelical Protestant population, and their, their children are not as conservative as they are. So some of that is changing. There's also, you know, over the, over the many decades, Catholics have had, you know, over the many decades since partition, since, and since Northern Ireland was created to maintain a Protestant unionist loyal to the crown majority, Catholics, uh, you know, outpace Protestants in, in having children. So there's, it's pretty much a, if you were to look at people's religious identification or the religious identification of their parents or grandparents, it's more like 50-50 now. And so one of the pieces to the Good Friday Agreement was that if a majority of people, and this was established in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, if a majority of people in the six counties called Northern Ireland uh, vote to be part of a united Ireland, it shall be granted. That was one of that was probably the only major uh, breakthrough with the Good Friday Agreement, other than that there has been a 
a really solid ceasefire for a few decades. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Michael Patrick McDonald. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. In 2011, Elizabeth was the first British monarch to travel to the Republic of Ireland since its independence. We're talking about independence in 1922, and she talked (laughs) about the difficult shared past of the two countries. She said, quote, to all those who suffered as a consequence of our troubled past, I extend my sincere thoughts and deep sympathy. With the benefit of historical hindsight, we can all see things which we wish had been done differently or not at all. And she even spoke a few words in Irish, a -hmm. language that had been banned under British rule at one point. Right. And a language that's still marginalized in the North by uh, unionists and loyalists who are, you know, who are kind of trying to carry forward this leg- legacy of of uh, colonial ascendancy and so forth. One thing about that uh, comment she made to all those who have suffered and the expression of um, thoughts and sympathy, uh, that was portrayed by the press as an apology. And I don't see any words of apology in there for the history of Britain and the British crown in Ireland. Thoughts and sympathy are very different from an apology. I teach about restorative and transformative justice, um, apologies, truth-telling, truth, accountability, repair, all that stuff uh, is an important part in working toward real reconciliation. Um, Thoughts and sympathy aren't really a huge part of restorative and transformative well, justice. Ireland efforts. was something of a test site for methods of governing policies and practices, including the promotion of English culture and language that were later transferred to other parts of the British Empire. So it was the test site as well. Yes. Um, laboratory, you could mm-hmm. you could call it. In fact, a lot of the um, you know, a lot of you see a lot of in this history, a lot of alliances among, well, between the Irish and other colonized peoples in in the uh, resistance movements, armed struggles as well as civil rights struggles and so forth globally. But it's interesting to also look at some of the alliances that exist among uh, oppressive regimes around the world. For example, the the South African uh, police force and the police force, the Protestant dominated police force in the north of Ireland called the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Um, you know, alliances uh, that you will uh, see among paramilitary groups like the Irish Republican Army and the resistance movements like the ANC and so forth, um, or the nonviolent uh, movements such well, as. What did they do? They share intelligence? Yes, and the re- and yeah, because it's really you know it's, it's the same story, and what works in one place will work in another place, and of course the British perfected colonization partially. Um, I I believe that a big part of uh, what makes British colonization distinct is that, and again, not a competition of who's the worst, but distinct is that is that targeting of the culture uh, that that. Um, existed from the get-go. You know, one of the quotes attributed to Queen Elizabeth I is a first order um, to hang all the storytellers, hang all the bards and break all their harps. And of course, the bards are the storytellers. They're, you know, that's a, that, that, that shows a really um, good understanding of what makes culture and how to really break a people. Um, by targeting their culture and taking their language and taking their tongue. Um, she knew that the power in Ireland and the power to this day, the power in Ireland is with the storytellers. It's always been the case. Um, the language was targeted for destruction. It's still undergoing a huge revival, probably more powerful than ever. So these things are, have been part of the resistance movement, the cultural stuff, the language and so forth. Um, the music, the storytelling, and uh, they have not been um, eliminated. They've been part of the the entire history of resistance to British imperialism, and probably the strongest part of the resistance, stronger than, than arms even. And you think that uh, Queen Elizabeth II was conscious of all that and trying to... Uh, smooth things over. In 2012, she shook hands with Martin McGuinness, a former commander of the Irish Republican Army, who'd become deputy first minister of Northern Ireland. And um, 
the the IRA had killed the Queen's cousin in 1979. I don't know right. if that was in the back of her head when that was happening. Right. Lord Mountbatten um, and I think Charles's uh, now King Charles's favorite uncle. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it, just a side note with Mountbatten, that's another example of the kind of global implications of all of this. He's the person responsible for the partition of India and Pakistan and all the, the bloodbath that, that ensued there. Um, he's also attached to a lot well, do of... Do you think uh, that that was... Do you think that that was uh, inspired to some degree by what happened in Ireland or just uh, dealing with another uh, complicated situation? Because that also had religious significance. Absolutely. And reinforcing religious significances, which is what they did in Ireland as well. Um, the thing about that meeting with the Queen and, and Martin McGuinness um, you know, at the time, I thought that was really, I, I was kind of blown away that Martin McGuinness would, would do that. And because even, you know, for me as a descendant of, of a whole history of um, subjugation, um, symbolically, it just like gets my back up to see something like that, um, to see Martin McGuinness uh, shaking hands with the Queen. And then I realized, you know, he's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> and um, he... You know, it was really actually um, an important move on his part. I think on her part, I don't consider, you know, her, her husband, by the way, at that meeting, just like turned his back and walked away because he's also related to Mountbatten. You know how they're related and they're all related, basically. <laughs> um, so I just thought it was a much bigger move on Martin McGuinness's part. And the important thing about what he was doing was that he was meeting the Queen of England as a kind of foreign monarch and meeting her in equal terms. He, he didn't do the traditional bow to the Queen and whatever you do, this certain way you're supposed to um, do all that meeting. And um, he, he was meeting a, a, just a foreign monarch on, you know, as an equal human being. And, and, and I thought that um, that was a really big move on his part. People emphasize how big a move it was on her part. Um, but I mean, Lord Mountbatten is one of, uh, you know, we can say millions of people, uh, who died, uh, as a result of this, of, of theft, the theft that colonization is, I mean, you know, it, 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 it this history dehumanizes everyone. It dehumanizes the subjugated and it just dehumanizes all the subjugators, which he would be one of them. It also kills a whole lot of people on all sides of of those lines. So um, he's another victim of that history, that history of British uh, imperial conquest and theft. Well, hasn't there been legislation in Britain that would end all legacy inquiries for British atrocities during the Troubles? So yes, and this is and this yeah, and this is a place where I think that um, we can question. You know, we, we, the, often the queen, the king or queen, the monarch is portrayed these days as a kind of innocuous figurehead, a symbol. Um, even if that were true, there are some symbols that we do away with. There are a whole lot of offensive symbols. You know, uh, the, the British monarchy, if it's a symbol, it's a symbol of colonization, subjugation, enslavement of humans. Um, a big part of it, probably the biggest part of the, the what it's a symbol of globally. Um, so even if it were just a symbol, uh, that would be enough for us to uh, do away with it. But, uh, but I don't think it's a symbol. And of course, the, the monarch meets with the prime minister once a week. You have to know, you have to imagine, well, you know, during the meetings with the prime minister throughout the hunger strikes, in 1981, in the north of Ireland, while uh, people were dying on hunger strike, you would have to imagine that they weren't just talking about the drapes um, when she met with Margaret Thatcher. And then in recent, uh, in our in the current history now, we're dealing with a whole legacy that's being erased by the British in with their attempts to eliminate all legacy inquiries, meaning inquiries into places where the British army and the British state uh, colluded with loyalist paramilitaries to kill 
Irish people, often innocent civilians, throughout the Troubles. Is, uh, is there a sense that maybe this is a good time to forgive and forget? The Irish <laughs> Prime Minister has said that the Queen's death is a reminder to the UK and Ireland that they need to, quote, proactively nurture the relationship. Right. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that would be um, very convenient if we could just, you know, wash our hands of all this stuff and forgive and forget. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I personally believe forgiveness is a thing to move toward. Um, not definitely not forgetting, but um, but you can't get to the, the the reconciliation, healing, forgiveness if one chooses to go that direction. Forgiveness is always an option. We refer to it as the F word in restorative and transformative justice. It's a mm-hmm. it can be a, a live wire, but um, but toward healing and reconciliation and all that good stuff, you don't get there until you've done number one truth telling. Number two, uh, accountability. Number three, repair, reparations. Well, is truth-telling different in uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland? Republic of Ireland, uh, have the responses to her death been very different? So, well, well so just on truth-telling, I just want to say, so we can't even get there. So the, there's one massacre where we at least got to the truth, and that was the Bloody Sunday Massacre. Uh, that happened on December 30th, 1972, when 14 unarmed civilians, nonviolent, um, a nonviolent march for civil rights, for equal access to jobs, housing, education, and the right to vote, which people forget that was not even allowed to hmm. um, most Catholics. Now, that civil rights march that happened on December 30th, 1972, saw British paratroopers shoot down um, 14 unarmed civilians to death in cold blood. It took 38 years uh, to get to the truth of that, where David Cameron, Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, did acknowledge that those people were shot in cold blood, that, that the shooting of them was unjustified and unjustifiable. And he actually issued an apology. That was a great step, but it's just that one step. It's the truth part. They've since prevented any kind of accountability, um, uh, on, on what happened that day and certainly any repair. But not only that, she, the Queen of England, dec- and I call her the Queen of England. I don't, people call her the Queen as if she's Queen of the world. I refer to her as Queen of England. Um, the Queen of England decorated uh, some of the um, soldiers at, at, who, 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 made, who gave the orders, basically. Wolford and Jackson were decorated, were made... Um, members of the British Empire uh, knighted. So um, that's just one case that at least they got to the truth, but then all this other offensive stuff happened. The families of Bloody Sunday victims requested that the Queen of England apologize for what happened that day, and that's never happened, of course. Um, But that's just, the other thing is that's just one massacre of many Mm. massacres of innocent civilians in Ireland, uh, particularly in the North, and Also, other instances of collusion in which, um, you know, I have a friend whose 15-year-old son uh, was coming home from a hurling match. 16-year-old son was coming home from a hurling match. Uh, Hurling is the indigenous sport that Mm -hmm. if if you're carrying a hurling stick and playing that game, that would, of course, identify you as Irish identified Catholic nationalist and he and his best friend were coming home from uh, hurling and were shot and killed by loyalist paramilitaries who were actually protected by the state. Um, Billy, Billy Wright was at the center of that. He's a loyalist paramilitary who colluded with the state, um, with the British state. And so there are just thousands of these cases where there was collusion with the highest levels of the British state between loyalist paramilitaries and highest levels of the British state who they were acting on behalf of. And no getting to the truth will ever be allowed on any of these things because of what the Brits are now proposing, that there be no more legacy inquiries, that we do move on, that we build a shared future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for the families, for you, you will not spend you know, a few days in the North without meeting people who have been impacted by this. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 
with Michael Patrick McDonald, who joins us regularly on this program to talk about between Britain and the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, And right now, um, they are, uh, well, complicated. For example, haven't some sporting events been canceled in Northern Ireland and some public buildings closed? Uh, in response to the Queen's death, but at the same time, um, a video a video from Derry in Northern Ireland shows people celebrating in the streets. Right. And of course, there are uh, two populations. One would be British-identified Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist, loyal to the Crown, and the other would be Irish-identified Catholic nationalists, uh, sometimes often Republican. Mm -hmm. And so there would be different responses based on that somewhat. But a lot of the state, the Northern Ireland state response has been, you know, in line with uh, British state response. But one of the most offensive things is food banks being closed (laughs) to honor the Queen. I mean, people are hungry and uh, they're partly hungry because of and not just Irish, you know, people, but but you know, all British subjects are dealing with a a crisis at the moment, an economic crisis, uh, um, food shortages and so forth. So, and a lot of it has to do with the great inequality in this history, the great inequality that victimized British working class too, even in London. Well, a video is circulating online that shows football fans. Yeah, those uh, would be- Dublin's- uh, Tallogh Stadium chanting Lizzie's in a box to the tune yep. of Casey and the Sunshine Band's Give It Up. <laughs> yep. And so, uh, yeah, there's definitely that urge among people and you can't really repress it. Um, there were attempts by that uh, soccer league or uh, the, the, the uh, I think the team itself, the whoever owns the team, team they uh, attempted to stop them and they've done it again, actually, saying Lizzie's in a box. So you can't really suppress that gut reaction uh, to a, a you know centuries old uh, history of, of subjugation. Um, and in the north, you will see in Protestant Unionist loyalist communities, you see, you know, murals to the queen being decorated with flowers and people are weeping and crying. And and uh, that's to be expected um, in other communities in the Falls Road in the more uh, Irish identified Catholic nationalist communities. You're not seeing that kind of weeping and moaning. You would be seeing some dancing in the streets. You can't, like I said, you can't really, there's not much you can do about that. That's, that's physical. Um, but the political party, Sinn Féin, and this is interesting in terms of the response, Sinn Féin uh, is the political wing, historically the political wing of the IRA. Sinn Féin is, uh, went into government uh, increasingly since the Good Friday Agreement have become the, uh, the main, the leading party in the six counties called Northern Ireland. And part of their effort at attaining a united Ireland, which is what they're working toward, um, they're the largest party in the North. They're actually the largest party now in the Republic of Ireland, even though they're, they don't have that seat in government, that positioning in government. They are the largest, most popular party in the Republic, in the 26-county Republic of Ireland. In the North and in the South, they're expressing their, um, you know, condolences, their saying very kind things about the Queen of England and so forth. And that's they just that's their job. And um, what they're trying to do is as they move toward a vote on a united Ireland, they're trying to let the Protestant unionist loyalist population of Northern Ireland know that uh, they will be, that their culture, that their, uh, and part of their culture is this, um, you know, is is this obsession with the queen. 
of England. And so they're, they're just letting them, they're trying to bring them into the fold. And well, I, I don't know that it'll work. It, well, hasn't, it, it hasn't worked. Hasn't King Charles expressed concerns that Northern Ireland may seek unification with the Republic of Ireland? Yeah, he has. And, and, and he's, he, he just visited Northern Ireland on Tuesday. Yeah, this, he did. And um, actually, he was greeted his flight path on his flight path. Um, there's an artist collective called Gale Force in Belfast, and they often put up messages on the Black Mountain. The Black Mountain is the backdrop to Catholic nationalist, Republican, Irish identified West Belfast. And they often put messages up there, political messages, sometimes solidarity with Black Lives Matter or and sometimes about um, their own history and issues there. And there the, the mountain. Uh, well, first of all, when Queen Elizabeth uh, II came to Belfast a few years back, her flight path uh, went went over Black Mountain and on Black Mountain, it said Iru is our queen. Iru is the mythological goddess representing Ireland. In other words, you're not our queen. Uh Iru is our queen. And then the other day, what went up on the mountain um, before Charles III's arrival was um, we serve no king, only Ireland. Uh, So that was right. And, you know, they fly pretty low. He certainly read that. Um, So he knows what's going on. And I think he probably he he made a number of visits uh, when he was Prince of Wales in 1995, 2002, 2015. I know it's impossible to predict the future, but Hmm. do you think that it's possible that uh, there'll be unification of Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland? Because they Uh, seem to be moving closer and closer uh, on many basic points. Yeah, I do believe that I'm going to see it in my lifetime. I've come across myself in Belfast, come across um, lots of pop Protestant people who are of that background, of the unionist background, of the historic ascendancy that dominated uh, the descendants of the natives. And they are often expressing that it is inevitable. And some of them express that they're not afraid of that. Um, the, the, there is a hard line loyalist, um, kind of troublemaking group. It's actually, um, led by people associated with loyalist paramilitaries, uh, throughout the troubles that are still around and involved in, uh, drug dealing and so forth. They're more like drug gangs now. Um, but they, they can cause a lot of trouble. So I do think I'm going to see it in my lifetime. Um, and, and, and maybe even soon five to 10 years, I really believe so. But I don't think it will be without trouble because these, you know, this might, these might be small groups, these loyalist uh, to the crown drug gangs, but they can wreak a lot of havoc, can havoc can cause a lot of death. Um, but the job for people, for nationalists and Republicans who are working toward a United Ireland um, has been focused on um in a big way, focused on just building that majority. And that would include some of the more progressive young Protestants who are not necessarily tied to their historic ascendancy or not tied to the Protestant religion or to evangelicism or to fears of Catholics and Irish people. And that goes with fears of LGBTQ people. And so forth. there are young people that are not of that ilk. So they're going to help grow that majority, but you still have to deal with, uh, you know, dangerous. We know in this country, um, you know, there are political minorities that are, that are a threat to our future. Cool. Um, so this political minority of, of loyalism, which can, can also be violent and dangerous, um, you know, there's an attempt to bring them into the fold. And you're, I, I don't think that'll happen. Well, has uh, so, it, so what happens then? I don't know. Hasn't Brexit been a source of tension between yes. Britain and uh, many people in Northern Ireland? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, of course, uh, just to back up to the Brexit vote, uh, just remind people that um, the only parts of the United Kingdom where a majority voted in favor of Brexiting, of leaving the European Union, those were England and Wales. Uh, Scotland, a huge majority in Scotland voted to remain part of the European Union in the north of Ireland, in the six counties of Northern Ireland, a a majority voted to remain part of the European Union. 
<clears throat> that majority in Northern Ireland that voted to remain part of the European Union would definitely be made up of overwhelmingly of uh, Irish identified Catholic nationalists, um, people uh, who, you know, have no desire to be in the United Kingdom, of course. Mm. But it also, in order to get a majority, it had to include some Protestants. So that was interesting. So that was the first majority vote for not being um, part of Little England, really. And so so that was a really interesting shift. Uh, but, but still, there's that that um, element that is very obsessed with being British. And they believe that the protocol, which has put the customs border um, into the Irish Sea uh, between Northern Ireland and mainland UK, the customs border has gone into the Irish Sea. So that's removed any kind of customs, possibility of a customs border in, on the island of Ireland. And so they're afraid that that's a step toward United Ireland. And they're right. Um, it is. And um, it's, you know, whether it's intentional or not, that's part of the Good Friday Agreement was to eliminate the militarized border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, the six counties and the 26 counties. That was so eliminated after the Good Friday Agreement, took a few years, but by about 2005, 2006, you could cross the border without knowing you're crossing the border. And this was an intensely uh, militarized border where people would be stopped, harassed by British soldiers for hours and so forth. That was gone. That was a huge shift in toward a United Ireland. And I think a lot of unionists and loyalists knew that then. Now with Brexit, they some of them thought, oh, this is great. We'll bring back the border. Because if, if, if Northern Ireland's part of uh, the United Kingdom, and if we're Brexiting, we're leaving the European Union, you're going to have to have a customs border, at least between Northern Ireland and the 26 counties of the Republic of Ireland. Well, well, so okay, let me you, do a little station ID here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> My guest is Michael <laughs> Patrick McDonald, and we're talking. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, Liz Truss, the new British Prime Minister, mm-hmm. has appointed Steve Baker, a hardline Brexit supporter, to a ministerial role right. in Northern Ireland. And that's led to some tension. Claire Hanna a lawmaker for Northern Ireland's nationalist SDLP said the Baker appointment was, quote, an obnoxious decision that will send a mm-hmm. destructive message to the European Commission and to parties in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's often said that so on this issue of uh, the UK maintaining Northern Ireland, uh, that as part of the UK, they it's often said that, you know, oh, the Brits don't, you know, they don't really care about uh, Northern Ireland anymore. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't play the role it might've played historically with shipbuilding in, in Belfast and economically or militarily, um, because military, military activity has changed in the world anyway, that, but it does, it's really, Northern Ireland is really important to hardline right-wing conservative Tories, um, because what it does because of Northern Ireland and because they'll have members of par- members of parliament going from Northern Ireland to Westminster, who are very, very right wing evangelical Christians, um, they're always going to side with Tories. Um, so uh, a Tory prime minister knows the value of having uh, those votes. They're the Trumpers of Ireland. Of They're the Trumpers. Absolutely. They absolutely are. And so a Tory knows we need them. So they, they use them when they need them and they end up throwing them on the, under the bus when they don't need them. But, but the DUP, the democratic unionist party would be the kind of Trump party. And they've been around a long time, you know, way longer, way before Trump. I mean, uh, they're founded by the Reverend Ian Paisley, who, who, uh, you know, um, remember him, who would make Trump look like, you know, Jesus Christ or something. Um, So uh, they are a very right wing party and they are the dominant unionist party in Northern Ireland. Their members go to Parliament in Westminster and they um, they're always going to assure that any really right wing legislation going through Westminster is going to pass. They they swing the majority a lot, so they are important in in that sense. They do have a, a northern maintaining Northern Ireland does have a um, a political value. They've often swung it in favor of Boris Johnson, and of course, Truss is even uh, 
beyond Johnson, some say. So, um, so she will, she will keep a tight grip on uh, the North. She will do what she can to um, appease the DUP. And part of that will be to uh, try to end the protocol, the protocol being the, you know, the, the protocol that happened in, in response to Brexit, where um, the European Union said you cannot bring a border back into onto the island of Ireland. Um, the protocol was developed to put that customs border in the Irish Sea where it belongs. And and so now they're saying that they were they're going to change their mind on that. They're thinking of um, ending the protocol. Call I want to ask you about a couple of other things. Abortion, and we don't have a lot of time. Yep. Abortion is legal under certain conditions in the largely Catholic Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. How has the Irish press been covering the post Roe v. Wade controversies in the United States? Um, so it's been interesting because they're just in shock. I mean, they're they always look to the United States for, well, you know, the, the United States was the civil rights movement uh, that inspired the, the civil rights movement in Ireland. Uh, the the movement for choice in the United States has always been looked to there. Uh, we have to, I have to remind people, so in the aftermath of the 26 counties becoming the Irish Free State, um, in the aftermath of that, that place that got its freedom from Britain kind of went from the frying pan and into the fire of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the reason for that is because the actually the actual revolutionary leaders of the Easter Rising, the, the, the leaders that would not have allowed for a Catholic theocracy to to emerge in Ireland, those people were all killed and the people that were left standing uh, were often quite Catholic. And even if they wanted sovereignty from Britain and the United Irish Republic, uh, they were might have been socially conservative. So what emerged, unfortunately, in the 26 county free state was a kind of theocracy dominated by the Catholic Church. Marriage was illegal up until very recently. So they always look to America um, for progress, the, you know, ideals of progressive reform. When the church was done away with in recent years as a result of abuse, abuses um, in, the, in Ireland, North and South, uh, when it was done away with, what came out of that was a more vocal movement and the stories of people who had suffered under the banning of abortion, the, the stories of women um, who had to travel to other places, to uh, to other countries, ironically sometimes to England, to hmm. to get an abortion and so forth. That what emerged then was a really powerful movement that got a huge majority in favor of allowing abortion in Ireland. And then what that did in the north, in Northern Ireland, which was dominated by this evangelical Protestant um, ascendancy is got a lot of young people in Northern Ireland looking to the south of Ireland <laughs> and, and their their um, referendum, which was a huge majority um, in favor of the right uh, to choose uh, people. in the that has also helped to dissolve the border because young people in the north, Catholic or Protestant, whatever their background, uh, tend to be much more pro-choice. So they look to the south, to the Republic of Ireland as what they want to be like. So that so a lot of the really social uh, social conservatism of the Democratic Unionist Party in the north of Ireland is uh, causing its own demise, I think, and now, also promoting a united Ireland. On another front, and we have just a minute or so left, 50,000 Ukrainians have found sanctuary in Ireland. Mm-hmm. That's the largest number of refugees the country has ever accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how that, what 50,000 would mean in some of the uh, the rural villages, but that's where right. they're moving to. <laughs> it's it's a lot. I mean, it's, you have to remember, too, the island of Ireland is, is relatively small. Um, so uh, I think it's like, what is the, it's, it's almost uh, 6 million, I think, uh, at the moment. Uh-huh. So, That's you know, smaller than New York City. Right. Population. So, the, you know, this is the whole island, um, uh, the Republic of Ireland and, and Northern Ireland uh, together. So, um, yeah, so there, for the most part, I have found that, uh, with some exceptions, for the most part, Irish people have been very welcoming toward um, 
toward immigrants, towards asylum seekers and so forth. Now, that doesn't mean the government has been. The government at the moment is a pretty conservative government, um, you know, well, conservative uh, by their standards, not by ours. They're more like our liberal Democrats, but they can be quite conservative around things like immigration, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in the South. And so they have uh, they have these uh, camps where they uh, direct provision camps where they keep immigrants and so forth um, and asylum seekers. And that's that's really horrible. But uh, the people in Ireland, I have found, have been really welcoming to immigrants. And when um, when you have when you see Syrians in a in a village community or um, or Ukrainians in a village community or Nigerians, those newcomers become part of the community. They end up playing the indigenous Irish sports, the Gaelic Athletic League and so forth. They end up learning the Irish language, which is the language of resistance <laughs> uh, to British imperialism. And uh, I got to leave it there. They become more Irish than the Irish. Leave it there. <laughs> I got to leave it there, unfortunately. Michael Patrick McDonald, you should definitely check out his books, including the American Book Award winning best-selling memoir, All Souls, a family story from Southie. Also, Easter Rising, a memoir of roots and rebellion. And Michael... I look forward to your next visit to our show. You're always a great guest. Looking forward. Thank you, Leonard. And um, and that brings us to the end of today's show. My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of London Pit at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. So we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and the number 2 WBAI. WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with. And we'd be happy to send you a BAI tote bag if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. And we rely totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be free speech radio. And we're the only one uh, in New York that is totally dependent on our listener support. Uh, so make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate, please. And, and uh, have a great weekend. <laughs>